Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Some bands, they could be from anywhere. Same hair, same clothes, same sound. Good music, nice to listen to, sells well. But it's not rooted in one place. You can't hear the town in the bass line, feel the streets and skies and the guitars. You can't see the history before. Find the moment in time they came along and jumped in. How they changed things. How the world changed with them. Joy Division? They sound like nothing that's come before. Ian Curtis? He's a lead singer who doesn't sing like anyone else. Doesn't move like anyone else. Joy Division couldn't come out of London. Not enough polish. Not the glamour and sparkle. There's nothing American about them. There's no beach, no sunshine, no cars and girls. They're pure Manchester. An old town, a new town, a city that tears down the past and falls into the future. A city of machines and factories, of heavy industry and constant revolutions. Of dark clouds and soft rain, of people on the make, looking for chances, working the angles, it's about control, this place. Where they want you to fit in. Who wants to keep you in your place. How you try and get free through big ideas, big nights, through drinking and drugs, through music. A dirty old town, as the folk song goes. I don't think I saw a tree until I was nine. That's what one of the band says. Because there's no parks in the middle of Manchester. It's terraces and wet streets and smoke from chimneys putting warmth in the heart and soot in the air until the bulldozers come in and the new flats go up. The new roads, the darkened underpass and the lonely bridges. It's a place forever falling apart, forever being rebuilt. And that's what you hear all these years on when you listen to Joy Division. When you hear Ian Curtis when his lyrics work their way under your nails. They sound like Manchester. The forgotten spaces and empty places, yellow streetlights, old bricks and crumbling concrete, the future and the past come together. They sound like Manchester. And they're about that battle for control. Our music, not your music. Our little record label, not your bloated one in London. How we're doing this not you. And that's Ian Curtis too, losing control, fighting to get it back, 
feeling lost and found, caught between two lives, between two girls. Tight with his band, but alone, singing on stage all the things he feels, but unable to say it to the ones who matter most. Wanting to escape, held tight by those roots, tearing down the past, falling into the future. Sometimes, with Ian Curtis, the end always seems to be coming. Everything feels like it's leading to one place. Then there's things that make you wonder. How he loves books as a kid, loves reading the Ladybird history ones, stories about medieval soldiers and Roman gladiators. How he likes playing football with his mates. How he makes a little pocket money in his teens by caddying for the old boys at the local golf club. It's not very Joy Division golf. But he's always an outsider, Ian. Grows up down the road in Macclesfield, Manchester dark on the horizon for now. The same warehouses and terraces, rain clouds climbing up over the Pennines and dumping it all on the steep streets and wet cobbles. Even less to do. So he gets bored, this tall, skinny kid. Bunks off from his posh school to sniff glue pours dry cleaning fluid into a hanky and sticks it over his face. He fancies himself as a radical, buys himself a red jacket like the one James Dean used to wear, another kid pushing against the system, another wide-eyed rebel boy. Prescription drugs are the easy way in. You go into your parents' bathroom, see what you can find in the cabinet. You get your mate with the weepy mum to nick her Valium. You see a bottle, lob a couple of pills down and see what happens. Sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it's just better than nothing. Other times it overtakes you, takes the control away. It's the schizophrenia medication that gets him in trouble, nicked off a pensioner he's supposed to be visiting for school, helping out the old and lonely. He falls asleep, collapses at home, has to have his stomach pumped, keeps going, hits the Valium, likes how it smothers any pain you throw at it. There's a time he stubs lit fags out on his arm, just because he can, gets a running shoe with little spikes on the bottom, sharp for the track, and smacks it into his leg again and again until the blood flows and the others grow quiet. There's a look on his face when he's done too much of the wrong stuff. Pale cheeks, cold hands, heavy breathing, slipping under the surface, letting it all go. He can't play the guitar, not yet, but he likes miming along in front of the mirror, loves listening to David Bowie. The album's recorded in Berlin. Weird and unsettling, not pop music, not anymore. He's obsessed with the ones who lit it up and then died young. Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, the ones who never got old. Who else gets into his head? There's two big meetings we need to talk about. The first one's in the flats where he lives, Victoria Park. All brutal concrete towers and elevated walkways. A post-war dream already cracking and falling apart. Across the road from the railway station, the trains escaping north to Manchester and south to London. It's a girl called Deborah, late teens just like him 
pretty face, short blonde hair. She's going out with his mate. He's leaning over a balcony, thin as a railing, black eyeshadow. His sister's pink, fake fur jacket over his narrow shoulders. The mate and Deborah don't last long. Instead, she starts spending more time in Ian's tight little bedroom, only space for a single bed. His stack of records, his pile of music weeklies like NME and Melody Maker. Then, under the bedside table, the big ring binder folder split up by cardboard dividers. A section for poems, a section for songs, one for ideas for novels. He treats her sometimes. Other times, it's the old ways. Not a modern love. He takes her on a date to see Bowie at a club in Stretford called The Hard Rock, just by Old Trafford Cricket Ground in Stretford. It's a car park for B&Q now, only that's closed down too. Manchester tears down the past and falls into the future. It's a pounder ticket. It's Bowie showing off his new single, Jean Genie. That's the good stuff. But there's another side. Ian's possessive. Doesn't like Deborah wearing short skirts. Doesn't like the idea other men might be looking at her. When he gets a job at Rare Records in the middle of Manchester, he tells her to come in on the train and meet him at lunchtime. On her journeys home, he tells her to catch the bus. Doesn't matter it takes much longer, means more hanging about in the cold. It saves him a bit of cash. But they're together now, and that's a part of his story that won't ever go away. The other meeting? That's the band. And it's another band that makes it happen. There's almost no one there when the Sex Pistols first play in Manchester. The summer of 1976, the lesser free trade hall on Peter Street. It's a posh hotel now. Manchester, the future and the past. There's only about 40 fans there, but there's two lads from Salford, Bernard Sumner and Peter Hook. They watch this unholy noise, this mess, and think, we could do that too. So do most of the others there. Morrissey, Mick Hucknall, Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks. Not bad for a ticket costing 50p. And when the Pistols come back again a month later, there's others there too. Mark E. Smith, who'll start his band The Fall. Tony Wilson, a local TV man, who'll start the little record label that takes on the world. And Ian Curtis, wearing a combat jacket with the word hate painted in big letters on the back. You talk at a gig like that. When you see people like you. When you sense the escape. And the fourth one in the band, the drummer? That all makes sense too. Stephen Morris lives round the corner from Ian, went to the same school, nicked records from the same shops, sniffed the same brands of glue. So now the four of them are playing together. Not that well, because they've only just bought instruments, but they're working at it. Practicing in upstairs rooms over pubs, in old factories with bare floors, piling the rubbish up in corners and burning it to keep warm. In the TJ Davidson's rehearsal rooms on Little Peter Street, that's gone too now, flats and a car park. Here's what it's like when you see Joy Division, when they find that name. A couple of small amps, the drummer quiet and shy, hooky on bass, loud, keen to get down the pub, Bernard on guitar, watching his fingers on the frets. Ian with a plastic bag full of words, scraps of paper, ideas scribbled in a book, 
trying little bursts over the jamming, fitting some in, binning others, breaks for a fag and a tizer. Coats on in that cold and damp, skint, always skint. You can't understand what Ian's singing a lot of the time, but you get the drift. A deep voice, menacing rather than melodic. Mike held right in his right hand, head bowed over it, lips right on the silver mesh. He doesn't look like a rock star, not like Bowie, not like Jim Morrison. He looks like a kid who can't afford clothes, trousers from a charity shop, shirts tucked in, collars, short hair, and these eyes staring at the floor, staring at you. Sweat on his forehead, even in this dark, dank place, like he's somewhere else, like he's out of control. The sound is coming together, the big bass lines from Hook like a melody in themselves, drums chasing on a strange rhythm, like a machine, like a factory floor, no sunshine, no cars and girls. They're still just boys, these lads, skinny as hell, playing at being men. But it all happens young when you work in class in Manchester. You jump through the hoops, you crack on. So Ian and Deborah get married, even as they look as young as page boy and bridesmaid. He's in a pale beige suit, like it's the first one he's ever owned. She's in a high-necked dress because of his jealousy, his control. The church? That's still there. You can see it from the main road in Henbury. Nice to see some things do survive. Ian and Deborah move in together. There's no money for anything but fags, not enough to heat more than one room. You walk into their little house and there's a strange triangular room on the left. Walls painted sky blue, the carpet blue, the sofa blue, the curtains... Yeah, you guessed. It's where Ian composes his masterpieces. That's what Deborah tells people. And when he's in there at night smoking Marlboros, scribbling on his scraps of paper, she hands him cups of coffee. It's his world they're living in, not hers. There's no glamour in all this. He's got a day job. They've all got day jobs. Hook's a clerk for Salford Council. Sumner traces drawings at an animation studio called Cosgrove Hall, where they make Danger Mouse and Chalton and the Wheelies. Definitely the better option. Ian? He works in the employment exchange, works with disabled people trying to find them jobs, gets the benefits they're allowed. So it's the nights when he comes alive. In these little clubs, sweaty and dangerous, drinking and smoking, fighting for space, fighting for attention. Stick the gear in the back of Hook's van. Drive across the north. Bernard with a sleeping bag wrapped round him to keep warm. Past the new flats, the new roads. Park up on those wet, cobbled streets. You see them on stage, and three of them are almost motionless. Drummer, bass player, guitarist, all concentrating hard, all inward. Ian, he opens himself up. He's directing it all to the crowd. The energy, the frustrations, the darkness within. It all comes out when the music starts, when the control goes. You watch him dance and you think, this boy's ill, he's possessed, he's lost. 
Always facing the front, staring out into the lights, the crowd, pale blue eyes, sweat on his forehead, arms jerking, legs pumping, first little twitches, then great spasms, like he's trying to punch himself in the face, like he's marching to a rhythm you've never heard. A look on his face like he's going to cry, like they're knocking him down from the inside out. It's nothing you've seen before. A sound from the future, but rooted in the streets, the factories, the clubs. Unknown pleasures, that's what they call the first Joy Division album. June 1979, Mrs Thatcher new in Downing Street, ready to rip up the past, remake the future. They record it in Stockport, halfway between Macclesfield and Manchester, the link in between. The producer smokes weed and drinks brandy and pulls this mad sound out of their heads and onto the record. You hold the LP in your hand and everything about it is new and different. The cover all spidery white peaks on a black background. Sound as a diagram. Radio signals from space, there on your fingertips. One side's called inside, the other outside. Pop music? Maybe. But more than that too. Darker, deeper. There's a photo of the four of them that makes the NME, one of those music weeklies Ian used to collect in his little bedroom. It's them on a footbridge, in the distance, away from the camera, snow on the ground, ice in the air, black and white and grey. You can see the iron railings, the streetlights, the new flats just beyond. You can feel the new dual carriageway down below, hear the noise of onrushing traffic. And you can still walk it now. Epping Walk Bridge, arcing over Princess Parkway, just south of the city centre. The rehearsal rooms on Little Peter Street, the clubs, the elevated roads dividing the old and the new, the crumbling brick chimneys and the new concrete towers. New stirrings on the northwest frontier. That's what the headline says. And that's what it feels like when you look at this picture. Somewhere frozen, but coming to life. The past and the future coming together. Feeling lost, feeling found. But there's always two lives with Ian. Finding control and then losing it. He's always had massive mood swings. He can flip from quiet and thoughtful to screaming fury. He'll fight you if he thinks you're getting in his way, if you're not doing what he wants. Now you start seeing why. Start seeing what else is going on behind that pale face, those staring eyes. He's had a fit before, as a teenager at a gig when they stuck the strobe lighting on, collapsing on the floor, having to be carried out. But no one knows it's epilepsy until the band start pushing it. Late nights, long drives in that van, booze and fags and the mad adrenaline of standing on stage and letting it all go for the people staring back at you. They're driving back north up the M1 motorway after a gig. Ian's nicked Bernard's sleeping bag, wrapped it round his head. Then he starts jerking. His fists come swinging like he's trying to punch his way through the roof. His arms thrash and his legs kick, kick, kick. They have to hold him down on the hard shoulder, force his body onto the rough tarmac. Wait for the fit to pass, stick him back in the van, give him a fag. And that's the sudden start of it. He gets some pills off the doctor, but the fits keep coming. Two a week, three, four. 
When Deborah gives birth to their daughter, Ian can't hold the baby because of what might happen if another fit comes in. Because these are not passing squalls, they're storms, what the doctors call grand mal fits. He collapses and jerks like the devils inside him, rising off the ground, smashing his head and limbs into the ground, blood and bruising all over him, like he's been attacked, like he's been beaten up. He's on the front cover of the NME now, wearing a green overcoat, smoking a fag. But they're still skint. Still can't even afford a telephone in the house to call an ambulance when the fits come. He's on stronger prescription drugs. The story's starting to come back to the start, and they're changing him again. Mood swings, sudden jump cuts in the film. Here's what he's on. Phenytoin sodium, side effects, slurred speech, confusion and dizziness. Phenobarbitone, side effects, drowsiness, excitement, confusion. All this goes into his stage act. These chemicals, these involuntary movements, this cerebral invasion. All this goes into his lyrics. Darker, more paranoid, mumbling. There's a phrase they use at the hospital. Tonic-clonic fits. The arc of the mood swings higher, from rage to excitement to tears in the run of a single song. He doesn't want to go back to bed because he's scared he's going to die in his sleep. Sometimes he has what they call absence seizures, like someone's pressed paws on him, frozen on the edge of his blue sofa, hanging from his bottom lip. The more it happens, the more he reads. Books that take you deeper, books that show you a darker truth. Friedrich Nietzsche, the stuff about life being meaningless, about mainstream culture destroying you. J.G. Ballard's Crash, about people who get their sexual kicks from car wrecks. There's a line from Ballard when he asks why he wrote it. I wanted to rub the human face in its own vomit. And Ian keeps performing. More gigs, less sleep. More strobe lighting, less rest. Drinking special brew, syrupy strong alcohol. Charging on like a man who can't stop. Like a kid speeding out of control. There's something else going on too. Another meeting, another woman. Joy Division are getting bigger, travelling further, stretching beyond that northwest frontier. They're in Brussels, playing at an art centre in an old factory. William Burroughs is there, the American author, drinker, junkie, visionary. Ian's impressed by him, but it's someone else he can't forget. She's called Anique, says she's a journalist writing for a fanzine. Dark hair, cool eyes, and they connect, these two, in a way the others can't ignore. There's something between them. A fascination. A signal. An alternative future. And so his two lives get further apart. The young father with the wife and baby daughter, in a terrace house with no phone and not much heating. The rock star who doesn't look like a rock star, on the road with a woman he can't be without. He starts disappearing when he's supposed to be home. His wife is checking hospitals, checking the police, and he'll just stroll in the next day and won't say a word. So Deborah confronts him, screams at him about this other woman, smashes his favourite Bowie LP, hits him on the head. It doesn't change much. She can't pay the red bills coming in for the electric, and he's walking about in new clothes for the next gig. They're all getting paid a bit now, 
Anil still take money from her purse for fags. And she feels she's lost him. Fears everyone's losing him. Joy Division start recording their new album in March 1980. No one's asking Ian about these lyrics. No one's asking him where they're coming from. They're boys playing at men. It's the North and it's the way everyone is. You don't tell people what's wrong. They don't push it. There's the time Deborah finds him at home with a knife and her copy of the Bible, cutting ragged chunks from the Book of Revelations. There's the time he collapses into fits on stage and the kids watching cheer because they think it's part of the act. The time he does two songs and staggers off stage and they find him crying in the bar, losing control, surrendering it. The first suicide attempt uses his stash of phenobarbitone. He swallows the lot, leaves a note, writes, no need to fight now, give my love to Anique. They find him, call an ambulance, just in time. He has his stomach pumped and it all carries on as before. There's a new song he's written, a drum intro like bursts of gunfire, a melody hugging the bass line, washes of synthesizer like a cold wind, a lyric about his two lives, his two women. Love will tear us apart, that's what he sings. In that deep mumble of his, mic up close, lips on the silver metal mesh. It's a song you hear and can't forget. America wants them now, a tour to take them away from Manchester, away from the dark skies and wet streets. Flights are booked, Ian tells the others, no need to pick me up, I'll see you at the airport Monday morning. So this is how it falls apart. He goes home, tells his wife to stay at her mum's. Don't come back before Sunday morning, okay, love? He sits in that blue room behind the blue curtains. He watches a strange film directed by Werner Herzog. It's about a man who kills himself after his lover leaves him. He listens to Iggy Pop, drinks whiskey and coffee, takes a photo of his daughter off the wall and sits down at the kitchen table to write a letter, all by hand, all in capitals. The curtains are closed when his wife gets back the next morning. She can see the light bulb shining through the gap, puts a key in the door. She walks in, can't smell his fag smoke, wonders why. She's taking a letter off the mantelpiece when she sees him kneeling in the kitchen. His head is bowed, his hands resting on top of the washing machine. She sees the rope around his neck and thinks, Ian's playing a cruel trick. It's all a trick, isn't it? There's little things they'll all remember afterwards. Deborah will remember sitting in her car when the police have come, when the ambulance has driven slowly away. She'll look out of the windscreen, up at the blue sky, the green springtime leaves, and she'll think, what a beautiful day. Peter Hook is having his Sunday lunch when the police call. They tell him they're after the band's manager. They tell him why. And he puts down the phone, goes back to his plate and keeps eating, like a man in a trance, like a man refusing to believe. Bernard Sumner is at home. He picks up the phone and doesn't get it. You mean, Ian's tried again, but he's all right, yeah, he's okay. 
The new single comes out two weeks later. A photo on the cover, a slab of grey metal with the title stamped into it like a carving, like a gravestone. Love will tear us apart. That's what the world hears Ian Curtis singing as newspaper headlines fade, as the summer kicks in, as the past is torn down, as they fall into the future. This episode of Death of a Rockstar was written by Tom Fordyce. It was performed by me, Emma Clark. Our editor was Phil Brown. For research, we read Touching from a Distance by Deborah Curtis and Unknown Pleasures by Peter Hook. We watched the Joy Division documentary directed by Grant G, as well as Control, the biopic about Ian Curtis, and Michael Winterbottom's 24-hour party people. We used the archives of the BBC, the Manchester Evening News, the Enemy and Melody Maker. If you want to hear Ian, we'd suggest three songs. Disorder for the bass, guitars and voice. Atmosphere for the mood. Love will tear us apart, because that's what it did in the end. If you want another podcast to listen to, go and find our episodes about John Lennon, Mark Bolan or Kirsty McCall. And if you're a sports fan, we have another show called Death of a Sports Star, which is also worth listening to. Search for Death of a Sports Star in your podcast app. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like chocolates. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>